You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter in a bright, beautiful, sunny, but very, very cold Davis Day. Chilly. Yes, as we record this broadcast on February 1st to broadcast for your pleasure on Groundhog Day 2023, February 2nd. Right now it's 45 degrees in Davis. Humidity is 70%. Wind is barely coming out of the north at three miles an hour and is going up to a high today of 55 degrees. We had substantial frost this morning. I see some temperatures in the 30, 31 degree range. There had been weather service predictions of possibly dropping down to even 28 or 29 this morning. That didn't happen, but many people went ahead and took the precaution of covering up tender young plants, and that was perfectly reasonable in view of what they were saying. Quick storm came in, pulled in some very, very cold air behind it. It isn't a bad idea to look at your possible night temperatures. And I consider 28 to 29 to be an important threshold, by the way, for a lot of these plants, like maybe the young avocado you planted last summer and so on. It doesn't hurt to cover them up with some frost blanket when you're possibly getting down below 30 to 31. I think that's as cold as we got this time though. 34 degrees tonight uh, before the broadcast. Tomorrow, areas of frost again, 57 degrees and mostly cloudy. Thursday night, we've got a fast moving cold rainstorm coming in with a Chance of showers here is about 30%, so the low is actually only going to get to about 44. Chance of showers Friday morning and then mostly cloudy with a high of only 54 degrees. Mostly cloudy Friday night, 40. Saturday, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers later in the day. High is going to be up around 57. Saturday night, showers are very likely with a low of 45. Chance of rain on Sunday. This is a cold storm. It can only be 58 degrees for the high on Sunday. Sunday night, slight chance of rain before about 10 p.m., partly cloudy with a low Sunday night, Monday morning, 38 degrees. Mostly sunny again, Monday, 59 degrees. Mostly clear Monday night, 36 degrees. So a couple of fast-moving storms. I've seen as little as a quarter to a half inch likely from each of these and uh, more snow up in the mountains. So these are going to be the kind of thing that will be in and out of the area, but it's going to be a little chilly out there for any gardening activities. KDRT is community radio, nonprofit, public radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. And while you're there, check out some of the other great programming here. And there's a a Hawaiian music show that is internationally famous. Amelio <laughs> Hawaii can join host Beth Post as she features the unique sounds of Hawaiian music from early icons of island music to today's innovators, exploring the styles, the history of the genre, revered songs and performers. It is live Thursdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Replays during the week. So for the rebroadcast time, you can just click on the scheduled guide. You can hear this beautiful Hawaiian music show all over the world. You can hear it on KDRT all over the world because we stream live. But did you know that in Maui, there is a Hawaiian music station and they are very familiar with Beth Post. Really? And it's 
amazing. When I was in Hawaii for a couple of weeks in uh-huh. January, uh-huh. And, and, uh, I know <laughs> I just sort of slipped that in there. Like it's no big deal. Thirty-four I degrees tomorrow warm. morning, but Lois was in Hawaii. <laughs> and I was walking around one time and listening to a, a, a fellow who was in one of the one of the shopping centers, and he was playing the guitar and doing really nice stuff. And this happens all the time over there. And so I walked up to him and I said, well, that was really good. And, and I was wondering if I could uh, interview on my on my radio show. And he said, oh, well, where are you? I said, I'm Davis, California. Oh, you know Beth. <laughs> <laughs> you know Beth? I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So anyway, it was, um, yeah. That's Beth, very cool. Beth, that's really good. It's very cool. And she does she does cultural uh connections as well she doesn't just play a song and give you a title oh she gives you all sorts of anyway nameli ohawaii broadcasts here on kdrt and is nationally famous perhaps even internationally hawaii is you know one of our states so we'll claim that one but who knows maybe they listen to it elsewhere in the world all right so here i am i'm in hawaii i'm looking at all this stuff there are little dracinia type things that are over my head or over the house you know it's just incredible and so i know that i can't make a bougainvillea hedge here because that's a tropical plant and hawaii is a tropical place so it works but we're a temperate place and so it doesn't work and so is there any rule of thumb about what we can grow here and there i mean do temperate plants grow in tropics and vice versa i mean if i moved to hawaii i would probably find myself very frustrated at first because i'd be going which peach variety can i grow here which tomatoes do i do you know you'd have to adapt to adapt to the new climate it would be rough but i think i could handle it (laughs) you could probably survive i could probably survive yeah no actually i'll tell you what i would do because i have a philosophy about this i would figure out what grows well there and just start growing that uh, rather than trying to grow something as well out of the range but you made a slightly inaccurate statement which actually gets to the point here. You mentioned bougainvillea being a tropical plant. We consider it subtropical. The world is divided more or less into the tropics, the subtropics, the temperate zone, and of course the Arctic or boreal zones. And uh, well, we are here in a temperate zone in Northern California, subtropical plants, which you might find listed, let's say for USDA zone 10, instead of the USDA zone nine that we're in, can be grown here. You just have to be aware that every winter you're going to have some likely injury to them and you either prevent that or you deal with it after the fact or whatever. I have actually seen uh, a bougainvillea hedge in Davis and uh, here in USDA zone 9B and even into 9A if you take if you find the right microclimate that you know we emphasize that repeatedly on the show but if you want to grow something that you know is not literally cold hardy here but almost might be like a subtropical then you're probably fine finding an exposure you know the direction that faces to the east or the south an overhang that traps a little heat that's where you're going to find a bougainvillea hedge or a hibiscus that makes it through most winters and the other issue is that Weather varies from year to year. We've had a couple very cold spells this year that did significant damage to subtropical plants. Now the question keeps coming up, will they come back? What do I do? And 
the answer to that very quickly is you wait until you see whether they're going to come back, then you do something. The combination, the double whammy we had here was a really cold spell in late November. Temperature got down to 28 degrees at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, stayed there for several hours, which is a big part of why it was so harmful. And then, okay, that would in and of itself would not necessarily have been a huge problem. A lot of top damage, a lot of leaf damage, even things like geraniums were badly hit by it. All right, normally we just wait. Unfortunately, we then went into about six weeks of fog, overcast, and rain. No sunlight pretty much for six or seven weeks, as many people here were noting at the time. It was just dreary and cold, not freezing cold, but one day it never got above 45. Actually, three days it never got above 45. Those three days or more in which we had 24 full chilling hours in one 24-hour period. Remember, chilling hours are 32 to 45 degrees, so those three days at least it was 32 to 45 degrees all day. A subtropical plant isn't being injured by it, but if there was prior injury from a hailstorm or prior freeze damage, rot can get in. Rot organisms can get in and start pushing their way further down into the stem. So I'm expecting we'll see more damage on subtropical plants that were injured by that frost and another one that we had fairly recently because of the moisture, because of the constant dreary cold that's lower than what any subtropical plant evolved with. A truly tropical plant, which would be something, let's say, like golden pothos, comes from an island near Tahiti, never sees temperatures below 60 degrees in its life. Temperature range for golden pothos in its natural habitat is about 65 to 85 degrees. It doesn't get extremely high temperatures either. It's pretty much greenhouse warm and humid all the time for that plant. If that goes below about 50, you start getting injury. If it goes below about 40, you get substantial injury. And of course, if it goes below freezing, the plant will probably be killed. And this is more of a spectrum than a, than a you know, binary choice or a series of specific categories that you lump the plant into. Hibiscus are a really good example. They're tropical, but... Well, the some of them are. Yeah, the one we're talking about. Thank you. Hibiscus rosa sinensis, the one you see in Hawaii and San Diego and places like that. The big showy one. There are hundreds of varieties. I mean, they're worth growing because they're incredible. There are, of course, hardy hibiscus, which are a separate conversation. But that one, it's tropical, but it grades into that subtropical category. I've had people keep that hibiscus going three, four, five years if they had just the right place outside near the house under an overhang. I'll bet they were really badly damaged this year. The ones I've looked at that were in places like that have been killed to the ground. And so now you'll find out probably in April whether they're going to come back. So it's a little more disappointing here to plant these because every year you have some degree of injury to them. Every year you have to make some value judgment about how hard you're, you know, some, some practical judgment about how hard you're going to prune it back, whether you're going to make it a focal point of your yard and so forth. I wouldn't do that. They can be grown, uh, but they're on the edge of hardiness here. And so you have to take, you have to find the right microclimate and give some special protective measures. And I think hibiscus is probably the best known in that category, but plumeria. If you go to davisgardenshow.com, you can find that incredible picture of the plumeria that Eric grew on our instructions down there in Southern California. I don't know how tall he is. I think he's about six feet. It's about half again taller than he is. And I look at this poor little plumeria that's overwintering once again in my greenhouse and think, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are not Southern California, are we? Correct. And so I'm doing it for fun to see if I can ever get a flower from it. And he has this picture of one that's in looks like an oleander, basically. It's in full bloom. So, so we'll does that mean that San Diego is a subtropical region? 
Yes, San Diego. Well, San Diego, you can certainly grow subtropical plants in coastal San Diego and much of the interior. You get further in, it's a big county. You get further in, there's actually hills and cold places in San Diego County where they even grow apples. But um, for the most part, coastal Southern California, I grew up in Sunset Zone 24, which is clings to the coast. 24 is the zone that goes all you can see or smell the ocean is the old joke about zone 24 in northern California that same zone is zone 17 it's rare to see a frost of any kind in either zone 17 or zone 24 and it's also very strong ocean influence and so it tends to be humid it tends to be very moderate climate I mean, the jo old joke is that the easiest job in the world is being a weatherman in San Diego because all you gotta do is it sunny and warm after the fog burns off and that's pretty much year round so uh, you know yeah. and i personally never actually saw a frost growing up down there yes they do happen occasionally i still follow a lot of friends down there who are garden experts and meteorologists if they get down into the mid 30s they're all posting about it with great alarm but yes they can grow as every yard i i worked in in, in la jolla will attest Bougainvilleas and hibiscus are perfectly common landscape plants down there in fact hibiscus are often trained as trees as a focal point imagine that <laughs> So I was in Maui and mm. uh, Kihei is the town that uh, this little uh, condominium timeshare is in. And it was like, half, you go walk across the road and there's the beach. I, how you couldn't get better. And the landscaping on the property was lush and verdant. And it looked like a, you know, a well-contained jungle. Mm -hmm. And yet... If I walked outside of that and up the hill to where there wasn't any development, which is like, you know, two roads up, it was a desert. Yeah. It was so, so dry. Um, and I realized that that island, which has a great big mountain on it called Haleakala, very tall. In there. On, it's really and cold as, up there. And the <laughs> it's winds, really cold up there. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, the winds come from the same direction all the time. Well, 90% of the time. And so those winds, laden with lots of moisture from the ocean, rise up over Haleakala, and they drop all their moisture as yeah. they're rising up. And then they get to the top, and they come back down the other side. And that's where Kihei is. So yeah. it's like one side is is jungle wet like the road to Hana and the other side is desert dry it's just amazing it's the it's the orographic effect and we have the same thing here it's the reason that uh, there's heavy rainfall in St Helena and Davis will record half as much rainfall it's just the uplift of the clouds squeezing all the moisture out of them on one side of the mountain range and then as they pass down onto the other side you get a lot less Hawaii has some fascinating regional climate differences oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. uh, there are places where they can grow peaches by the way and apples and yep. things like that because those volcanoes are young but they're mountains and so you do get that pattern uh they, there is also very very interesting soil differences there I mean it really would be a fascinating place to garden and people who garden there tell me well, it is like gardening in paradise, much as gardening in La Jolla was more or less like gardening in a greenhouse. The downside of that, there is a downside. We have to remind ourselves of this. The pest problems are amazing because they never get a killing frost or anything like that. So we deal here with fruit flies occasionally and there'll be a state quarantine and we'll eradicate them. All three of the major fruit flies in the world that are some of the most destructive pests are in Hawaii and they have to deal with those. So it's, you know, there can be challenges when a pest comes into a otherwise pristine island and suddenly takes hold. Uh, it's very, very hard to get rid of. So, you know, 
I know paradise is cool, but it can be hard to garden there. But to get your question, we we generally group plants by tropical, subtropical, temperate. We happen to grow in a region where garden in a region where subtropical plants can be grown with a little special attention. And of course, most but not all temperate zone plants can be grown here as well. When we talk about chilling hours for fruit trees, for example, there's some that need far more chilling hours than we get here. Those would be grown up in Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, getting up into the the truly colder belt of Cal of the United States. We happen to be in one of the best places in the world to grow food crops here in mm -hmm. the Sacramento Valley. And I, when I have looked over other parts of the world that are similar, there are such regions in Chile and Peru, in Southern Africa, in Australia, where they have the same combination of enough winter chilling for these crops, but not so cold as to kill these crops. There aren't that many places in the world where it's easy to grow both deciduous fruit trees and citrus, and we can do that. But we can't grow the truly tropical things, except there are almost always exceptions, as we like to tell you. And for those, you go to the Rare Fruit Growers Associate Society or California Rare Fruit Growers, CRFG. You wanna grow a macadamia nut? You know, there is a variety of macadamia nut that grows in Northern California. It's called Beaumont. It exists, yes. So it can be done. No, you don't have all the choices that you had in, say, San Diego or Hawaii, where macadamia nuts are actually commercially grown. But there is a variety. Papaya is similar. You know, there's a particular type of papaya that can be grown here in Northern California. Most nurseries aren't going to stock those routinely because there's not enough demand for them. And they can be marginal, especially when they're young. So it's a little extra protection of the plants when you first put them in <clears throat> that first winter or two. But you know, that group that I've mentioned frequently, the CRFG, that's where you'll find them. Mm -hmm. You go to the Scion exchanges, or you go to those meetings, and they say, Oh, yeah, I know this nursery and way out who knows where that stocks them all the time. And you drive out there and you get one. There's a nursery in Sacramento, Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery, which likes to order in the subtropical and even some of the tropical fruits and keep them in during the summer, not probably not in stock right now, but they like to do that because they're interested in them. So you can find them and you can try, but be aware that you're growing things. Let's just call them zone 10 plants here in zone 9B. Anyway, I'm glad you had fun in Hawaii. Now you have to come back to the cold, dreary Sacramento Valley. <laughs> All right. Now, listeners, I want to, to do a little education for you, because I know some of you don't know what a website is or how to use it. Well, no. I mean, websites are... are, are... When did we start your website? That 1999. Was 1999, yeah. 1999, yes. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's been updated since then, but it, it looks sort of 90-ish, it. It, 90s ish. You know, it's very funny that you say that because my friend Fred Hoffman has me on his podcast periodically and he pulled up my website and said, This looks like it's from the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, right? Yeah, but that's, that's okay. Uh, it works. Yes, and Don was smart enough not to switch over to the more modern style 20 years ago. Smart, and thank that you. more modern style uh, doesn't work anymore, but his does. So, anyway. Um, you can listen to the podcast and and pause us as we go, but I want to show you how to get really good information. So first of all, I call up his website, which is redwoodbarn.com. All right, I'm here. I'm looking at his website. There's a lot of stuff on it, but there's one really good thing up in the corner, upper right-hand side, where there's a place, and then you can search on this site for something. So I've typed in bulbs, and when I 
hit that, and gives me a whole list of all of the places on his website, which include the word bulbs. But it's just his website, so you're not getting other stuff. So I'm going down here and I'm finding, oh, let's see, let's go to um, the one that says bulbs-redwood barn nursery. All right, I go there. Hey, I now have a chart yeah. and it talks about all of the bulbs that he has. I mean, it starts with A and it goes and goes and goes. Luckily, I only have, I don't have to page. I just have to scroll down. And it has all this stuff. And in addition to that chart over on the right-hand side, it says, click here for a printable PDF version. Click here for an article about bulbs because he writes articles all the time for the Davis Enterprise. And then click here for more information about, and then it has links to bulbs for shade, geographic origin, bulbs of South Africa, and bulb toxicity. Yeah. If I go to those, they're either a, a, a table like the bulbs for shade, or they're a picture of a table, or the geographic one is just a list of all sorts of things. And this is a photograph. It's not, it's not typed in. So you can just right. copy and drag it, whatever. Um, bulbs of South Africa, fascinating stuff. And right. the, yeah, and the reason for this is that we had a question from Ashdale, and there was a follow-up question from a gentleman in the nursery. I talked briefly about it. Uh, he was asking about the bulbs that bloom in the summer, not not the traditional bulbs you're all thinking of, daffodils, tulips, hyacinths, things like that. And I rattled off a whole bunch of botanical names like uh, Watsonia's Tritoma, Tritoma, excuse me, Crocosmia, Montbrecia. Well, there's a little fast for people to scribble down. If you go to what Lois just said, do that little bulb search in the search this site Google search box there at redwoodbarn.com, you'll find a list of the bulbs of South Africa. And those are the ones I was talking about in particular. These are uniquely adapted to our region. It's very appropriate to the climate discussion we were just having. These are not bulbs you're going to find on bulb websites that are geared towards the tulips and the daffodils and those types of things. The bulb industry is very focused on the more cold tolerant bulbs that are widely grown, the ones that come through uh, the Netherlands, you know, the, the, the bulb industry that goes back, what, 500 years. Tulips, daffodils, hyacinths, crocus, things like that. Many of these bulbs would not be hardy in other parts of the country. These are sort of unique to us and to South Africa and parts of Australia. They can go to USDA zone nine, but not much colder than that. And these, it's a whole range of amazing bulbs, including and bul bulbs and bulb-like plants. So I use the term generically. I'm really referring to geophytes, as we've said before, true bulbs, corms, rhizomes, tubers, things like that. I mean, right there on that list, the second thing on it is agapanthus lily of the Nile, which is actually native heavily all over Southern Africa. That's great here in California. It's one of the most common plants in California, honestly. For, for the 60s, 70s, and 80s, agapanthus was planted everywhere. People who come here from Southern Africa think, did this naturalize? No, this was just us planting your plant here in California because it does so well here. But it also does naturalize. I, I planted one can, yes. in my yard, and now I have a zillion because I don't dig them up and get rid of them. Yeah, it can reseed happily in your yard. And this is an important point. A lot of these bulbs from Southern Africa and, and um, similar parts of the world can become, I won't call it invasive because they're not typically truly invasive in the sense of spreading out into wildlands and displacing native vegetation. 
but they can reseed all over your yard or they can multiply freely in your yard. They can become what the British like to call garden thugs. Bear in mind that in colder climates, people go to great effort to grow agapanthus. They'll keep them in containers. They'll nurture them through the winter, bring them back out. They do the same thing with canna lilies, which to us are practically large tropical-ish looking weeds in the backyard. These are things that are pretty unique to California. And then his next question, of course, was, oh, great, uh, can you get them? Well, the traditional bulb companies usually don't sell these because they're not part of their thing. They're not like tulips and daffodils. They're both, many of them are spring planted, not fall planted. Many of them are too tender for them to recommend. In the back of their catalog, you might see them as something that they'll send to you, but they don't consider them a, a core part of their product line. So you'll typically have to find these either from specialty growers uh, specialty bulb suppliers you've purchased from online, or many of them are potted up by wholesale growers. I mean, I can get things like Watsonia's growing in gallon cans. I can get uh, some of these species gladiolus, some of the things like Crocosmia, Chasmanthi, and they're great garden plants. You're just going to look for it like a perennial, which honestly is what a bulb is, just like a garden perennial at a garden center. Plant it out. If you buy it, it's almost sure to be packed full of bulbs or corms or whatever the actual structure is in the case of that species. You can frequently divide them, even at the time of planting. You might sacrifice your bloom, so maybe wait till they're done blooming, or you can put them in the ground, let them grow for a year, dig them up and divide them. And in some cases, they'll multiply themselves quite freely. So we like these because being from a similar climate to California, they're very well adapted to our rainfall cycle. They're generally very drought tolerant. They're generally great garden performers and in some cases even to the point of spreading pretty vigorously. But if you wanted to see a longer list of the ones I rattled off so quickly one or two programs ago, there it is at redwoodbarn.com. Look for bulbs and you'll find the bulbs from South Africa, where I believe, I recall, there are more geophytes per square foot than any other place in the world. Bulbs are uniquely and remarkably adapted to Southern Africa. Well, that ends our educational portion of this show. And now we come back to finding other things. I have uh, two articles that um, Jim Drummond was kind enough to forward to us. And I'd like to read you this first one. It's from the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And it says, here's how gardening can improve your health. And this, uh, this came out this January. I, I want to read a portion of it. There was a study in the Journal of the Lancet Planetary Health, which found that people who participate in community gardening programs eat more fiber and get more physical activity than their counterparts who don't garden. Hmm. And I'm thinking when I read that, yeah, sure, you take a bunch of people who are gardeners and a bunch of people who are not, and there's got to be other differences. But no, they did this scientific study. They, they uh, advertised for people to to come and garden, first-time gardeners oh. in, in this community project. They got all of these responses and they split them up into two groups. One got to plant right now, one they said, well, we'll wait and have you do it next season. And then they followed the health of those two groups. So it was like- These were, was, oh, I see, okay. A, a purely, I mean, a, a, a good scientific study. Mm -hmm. 
it's called Here's How Gardening Can Improve Your Health. Okay. And one and thing to note about it. It's published on January 23rd, in case you want to look it up that way. Yeah, one thing to note about gardening is that you can do it at almost any level of physical activity. That's one of the things I really appreciated about it, about it as a form of exercise. Even if you're just raking leaves, you're walking around and moving around. Unless you're foolish and do things that harm you, as some of us have done, mm -hmm. <laughs> lifting, cutting, whatever, doing things we shouldn't be doing. Know your limits, gentlemen, I would say. One of mine is now ladders. But uh, yep. the... Uh, the fact is that even uh, well, I, I do a lot of I'm doing a lot of work out of retirement center here in Davis, and I just walked around the other day with a whole bunch of the residents there talking about pruning roses. Several of them have adopted plant the roses around the complex. This is my section. I prune these. This is her section. She prunes those. I thought this is great. So they're just taking the common landscape, you know, which has some roses in it, and they're adopting them. They're getting out. They're pruning them. They're taking their time about it. There's no hurry. There's nothing that says you have to do it on the clock or anything like that. And honestly, if they don't do it, the maintenance service that comes through will probably take care of it. But they're just working gardening at their level as something they enjoy. So uh, we need to get them planting vegetable gardens so they get more fiber in their diet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you had another uh, article there. Yeah, well, this one I thought would be a fun one for us to talk about. This is, again, from the Washington Post, January 25th, and is heirloom seeds can yeah. yield robust, tastier veggies. Here's what to know. And then it goes on to say, um, is your garden planning limited to browsing the seed packets on the rotating display by the checkout at the hardware store? Or simply flipping through a few big box gardening catalogs to order whatever looks good for your growing zone? <laughs> if that's the case, you're probably purchasing mostly hybrid varieties. It might be worth rethinking your approach to your plot and planting heirloom fruits and vegetables instead. Usually, at least 50 years old, these long-loved varieties offer multiple benefits and require, but don't require special equipment or growing conditions. And here's the, the, the part that I like. And this is a quote from Mike Bollinger from Seed Savers. He says, mainstream varieties are bred for durability, long shelf life, or appearance. On the other hand, a lot of heirloom varieties were bred for canning, fresh eating, and flavor. Yeah, and there's some some uh, a little bit of a false dichotomy there. First of all, every seed company I'm aware of nowadays has plenty of heirloom varieties. It was about 20 years ago that heirloom tomatoes started to catch on and uh, people went back and found these older varieties. And we, of course, talk about them really regularly here. And I do want to toss in one comment. Heirloom varieties tend to be very regional. So that's an issue that they don't really get into here is that all of the heirloom varieties that I'm aware of are from east of the Mississippi and they may or may not do well here. So you need to find out whether an heirloom variety is successful in your area. And seed savers exists all over the country. So if you go to the local seed savers, you're going to be dealing with people who are saving seeds of things they've grown here. So you know they grow. You hope they do, yeah. And sometimes people are just attached to a particular variety for what I would call sentimental or in they have an interesting story, you know, Arkansas Traveler. Nebraska wedding. There's some story there. Mortgage, Mortgage lifter. lifter. Yeah, yeah, that's a like classic that one. one. And that happens to be an heirloom tomato that does well here. I'm going to differ from him a little bit in that um, the flavor of a fully ripened hybrid tomato is phenomenally outstanding and as good as the full flavor of a fully ripened heirloom tomato. So I don't want people to think hybrids don't taste 
is good. They were, in fact, often bred for disease resistance, which can be very important. Some of them have been bred for other characteristics. Burpee Seed Company, for example, uh, has certainly jumped on the heirloom bandwagon years ago, and they have plenty of heirloom seeds uh, varieties. What they've done is something which is muddying the waters a little bit. They've hybridized, or the seed growers they buy from have hybridized heirloom varieties with modern hybrids to get the flavor of the heirloom varieties with the disease resistance or more compact growth habit or something, uh, some other characteristic of the modern hybrids. So these are hybrids, obviously. They've been intentionally created by hybridization, but they are marrying in the characteristics that you liked so much in your heirloom varieties. So it's getting a little harder to read those seed catalogs these days. Yeah. I do always want, and we're talking just tomatoes here for the moment. When you're choosing the, let's say, six tomato varieties you're gonna plant this year, Heirlooms are fine, but make sure, let's say, three of them are hybrids and three of them are heirlooms, because I will tell you that hybrid tomatoes in our climate tend to outperform heirlooms in general, partly because of the origin of those heirlooms. They're from eastern states where they don't get as hot and dry as we do, and many of them just give you years where they don't yield as well. That can be true of hybrids as well. By diversify your portfolio, but be sure to get at least a couple of the hybrids in there. One of the most important things the hybrid tomatoes have in many cases is built-in resistance to the soil-borne diseases, verticillium wilt, fusarium wilt, and the soil pest nematodes, the VFN on the label, and we have those things here. Not everyone, not everywhere, but when you do get fusarium and it kills the heirlooms out of your planting, be nice to have a couple hybrids that are pushing through that and still giving you yield. So there's advantages to a hybrid. There's also unique characteristics of heirlooms that are worth looking at. And that goes for fruit trees to some degree as well. And one of the things that I think you can do, if you if you really want an heirloom and you and you know that they'll die if you put them in the ground, don't put them in the ground. Put them in a pot. Mm -hmm. use, use bagged stuff to to plant in, so you're not getting any of the diseases which are ex existing in your soil. And you know, put them in a pot. Containers, one yeah, one container. heirloom in a, in a half barrel works fine. That may be the answer for folks who are dealing with fusarium, for example, even the resistant hybrids can have problems because fusarium is now we're now on our third strain of it that it's it's mutating as fast as they're breeding. So, you know, hybridization is not a perfect answer to that, but it, it helps. I'm looking at the 10 they chose to focus on. And there's a couple of these. I always grow the lemon cucumber. That's a good example of one. Uh, it's one of my favorites for flavor. It they now they they did what really bugs me about this one. The picture they showed every lemon cucumber in that picture is over ripe. They're all yellow. Lemon cucumber should be picked while it's still green or just beginning to blush yellow. So that's a funny example, but it's a very productive for about four to six weeks, very productive variety for about four to six weeks. It doesn't produce as many. It doesn't produce as long. It's not resistant to diseases. So I do suggest if you're planting cucumbers and you've got room for it, plant a lemon cucumber, also plant one of the new hybrid burpless cucumbers, and that'll keep going for six weeks after the lemon cucumber is done. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with the ones they chose to highlight on here. They've got the dragon carrot, which is dark purplish red. They've got the green zebra tomato, which does very well here generally. Uh, they've got a particular eggplant, and the uh, eggplants, all, heirloom or hybrid, are incredibly productive here in the Sacramento Valley. If you're an eggplant fan, you live in the right place. They do very, very well here. Jimmy Nardello sweet pepper is one of my all-time favorites. It's got a wonderful, very rich sweet flavor, and it's not hot at all. So those are a couple of examples. Just be cautious about jumping into too many heirlooms without balancing it with some tried and true hybrids. I guess that would be my bottom line on this. Do you... Uh... 
have a list on your website of the heirlooms that grow well here because i know this is the washington post they're from back east mm -hmm. so uh, do you know if you have a list of things that that do well here they're the i have a an ongoing list that i started many years ago of my top tomatoes mm -hmm. and there are heirlooms on it and there are hybrids on it and i think if you look and by the way that list has changed slightly over the years there's been new hybrids that have come on i've tested some of more heirlooms i tried try to do a couple of older heirloom varieties every year that i haven't grown before sometimes i get great results i mean i've got to mention um uh, cherokee purple okay now i'd grown that one for years it's an heirloom variety that was one of the first that has the extra purplish blue pigment in it and uh, usually it'll give me 30 or 40 fruit and they're mostly about six ounce eight ounce fruit that's good you know there's not a super high yield but that's good two years ago it was my top yielding tomato overall it gave me over 100 fruit and they were fantastic and i was sharing them with everybody now i'm not going to say based on one year's experience that cherokee purple is always going to be a high yielder i have an actual policy that i don't ever recommend a variety unless i've grown it two years <laughs> because i've had varieties that gave me nothing and then gave me huge yields and you know you can have that range with even hybrid varieties but cherokee purple has been consistent middle of the pack production two years ago for whatever reason it was phenomenal and it's a very good flavor and a very cool old variety so it's definitely on my list you'll find that list it'll be very prominent on my website also posted at the redwood bar nursery as we get closer into tomato season uh what are my favorites because there's hundreds 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 of varieties of tomatoes out there and narrowing it down can be pretty challenging so i would say my list is more hybrids than heirlooms but there are some heirlooms on there and then we have this other weird category the new heirlooms yeah new air well <laughs> what they are is open pollinated and that's one of the characteristics of heirloom tomatoes that people like is that you can save the seed from them as opposed to hybrids for saving the seed you won't get predictable outcomes you can carefully save the seed from an heirloom variety and grow it year after year that's how they've been handed down from generation to generation well brad gates with his wild boar farms tomatoes um, his are open pollinated. They're actually just variants of existing heirloom varieties that he found as a farmer growing in his many, you know, he'll have a hundred of green zebra, for example, and one mutant seedling will come up that'll be different, unique. If that characteristic is stable, he grow a couple generations to make sure that it wasn't just a one-off, that it's actually consistent and stable. He thinks it's desirable. He's given those names and has put them on the market. So they're not heirlooms because they haven't been around for 50 years plus as the old rule of thumb goes for heirloom tomatoes, but they're open pollinated. So they're like heirlooms in that regard. And he's been selecting them for flavor and colorful fruit and things like that, which is the other thing that typically keeps an heirloom in production. So they're like heirlooms, but they're modern. So we like to use the term modern heirlooms because it's a classic oxymoron. <laughs> so the real difference between hybrids and heirlooms or modern heirlooms mm -hmm. is that hybrids you have to buy the seed every year fresh from somebody be, who has created that hybrid. Heirlooms, you can save the seed from one year and plant it the next year and keep going. And since tomatoes are self-pollinating, even if you aren't real careful about it, there's a high likelihood your seedlings will come true. Bear in mind that bees do visit tomato flowers. So if you're trying to conserve an heirloom, it is important to tickle the flower, pollinate it by itself, and then cover that particular flower to save that fruit for the seed. If you're trying to make sure you keep that heirloom seed 
pure or whatever term you want to use. Um, if you're not real concerned about that, yeah, you can save seed from any of your heirloom and 95% of them will come true from seed and you'll be happy with them. Whereas hybrids, you'll get variable results to put it mildly. Whenever my father would let his hybrid tomatoes reseed in his compost pile, I remember all of them seemed like large cherry tomatoes and <laughs> they weren't great they were i mean it's still a tomato you can still eat it cook with it whatever it's just not great it didn't have the characteristic of the hybrid so uh, there are you can read about actually seed savers and sites like that read about uh, how to save seed from your tomatoes to keep the strain more or less pure but it's not that crucial the key being that you can do it whereas with a hybrid you can't well we have another question in our mailbag and don where would people send a question if they had one davisgardenshow at gmail.com all right well Catherine said in a question she sent in a question a little earlier we talked yep. about it and she said hi Don and Lois first I love the idea of cutting plants at soil level instead of pulling their roots out of the ground so the roots can contribute to the web of something I forget what you called it but it was always bringing to mind the circle of life in Lion King there you go <laughs> and you I'll hum that song as we cut plants off <laughs> but is it good to do that even with weeds? I'm thinking of the grass that emerges every January where my front lawn used to be, or a couple uh, sorts of weeds that are always trying to take over the garden. Should I cut them or pull them? If it's an annual weed and most of those grasses that come up with the rains and grow through the winter and flower in the spring and go to seed like oats, barley, things like that, ryegrass, yes, you can cut it, you can mow it. You can cut it, whatever you want to do. Mustard is another good example. If it re-sprouts from a rosette, like I talked about a weed that was real problematic for another listener last week, that you cut it off and it just re-sprouts, like a dandelion. You know, you're cutting it, it just has enough growth buds to re-sprout. Well, you better figure out some other way to deal with that one. Either cut below the rosette or go ahead and pull the thing out. Um, so if it's an annual and any cover crop typically falls in this category, mowing, chopping, cutting is just fine. As we get into the hotter weather, they will typically die down. What I usually do on my property, if I haven't sown a cover crop, I allow the native or more commonly the non-native grasses like the oats and the barley and the rye grass to go ahead and grow. There's usually mustard out there. There's usually other things. And then as we get into mid to late March, first of April, I just mow them as short as I can with a, a, a brush mower because I'm talking about a pretty big area. And I try to do it right before going into some warm weather because all that stuff that comes off just functions immediately like, like a straw mulch. It just falls on the ground, it, it dries up, it breaks down and it, it enhances the soil. It also shades out weeds very effectively and all the roots just disintegrate. So grasses in particular, if it's an annual grass that comes up on the cycles of winter rainfall, Cutting it is absolutely fine. You will find if you mow it and where you have cooler weather or we get another rainstorm or something, it'll often push up again. It'll try and grow again. You mow it once more, that's usually all it takes. If it's a grass like Bermuda grass, well, you got a different problem. So <laughs> cutting off Bermuda grasses is going to re-sprout from the rhizome. But annual winter growing grasses and most annual winter growing dicots, mustards, radishes, things like that, cutting, chopping, mowing is just fine. It may take one or more cuts to do it but that's a simple way to manage it and then the roots simply disintegrate and in my opinion grass at least here in the valley grassland plant community that we're all living in, in the sacramento valley here growing grass as an annual cover crop of any kind is one of the very best things you can do for your soil because the roots in particular are very extensive i mean they make quite a network and then that all disintegrates so it's, it's almost like rototilling in a whole bunch of organic material except you're not breaking anything up as you do when you rototill so the idea is you're contributing contributing to the soil web is what it's called which is the whole 
biosphere of roots and the things that live on roots and things that live around them, things that decompose them, the things that live on them as they decompose and so forth, it all lives on all of that stuff down there. And those things are very beneficial to the next crop you put in. It also helps to enhance uh, infiltration rate of the soil of the water into the soil. It, it, as they're there, they hold on to nutrients and then release them back to the next plants and so forth. So they're entirely beneficial. So if you can possibly leave the roots. Now, I was talking with another podcast person at one point, and I said, I even do this with tomatoes and peppers, things at the end of the season, cut them off. And she goes, ooh, I recommend they pull them up and look at the roots. Yes. Okay. If you've had a concern about disease or pest problem on tomatoes in particular, root knot nematode, something like that, pull one of them out, look at it, look at the roots, look for those nodules. For the most part, though, I just cut things down, whether it's the fava bean cover crop I grew, the tomatoes I grew that have frozen down now, cut them off at ground level, let the roots disintegrate in the soil. It's a lot easier, for one thing, and it's really good for the soil, and you aren't breaking up that soil web. We know that when you till, I don't want people to think I'm a, you know, I'm, a, this is an absolute never till ever rule, but in general, when you rototill disc churn soil, you're breaking up those interconnections of the soil mycorrhiza and the other things that live on the root. And the question we had was, no-till has become very standard in agriculture. It's become a really recommended practice to minimize erosion, minimize loss of nutrients and so forth. But people do have to till sometimes. You know, the first time you do a vegetable garden, there's a pretty good chance you're going to want to rototill in some organic material and so forth. Are you doing harm? Well, yes, for that season. The question is, how long does that harm last? And so I can tell you as a secondhand comment from someone who asked someone casually at a conference <laughs> what the answer to that question is, they said, ah, we think two to three years. Okay, so the rototilling you do this year has broken up the web and you've done some harm, but you've also added some organic material. You had some reason for doing it. A couple of years later, perhaps it's all fully reestablished itself. We don't know for sure, first of all. Second is a lot of people who like to rototill like to do it every year. That's the problem. When you do that, you're creating this funny zone, four to six inches deep at best. That's about as far as most rototillers actually go of strangely amended soil that is also less less full of life than the soil below it because it doesn't have all that soil web stuff you're creating sort of a perched layer of weird soil on top of your native soil in the long run that's not good yes you can do that for years we all know gardeners who rototilled in steer manure year after year after year and they had the best darn tomatoes in dubuque iowa or wherever the heck it was is Dubuque in Iowa? <laughs> and <laughs> they were getting good results because they were adding in nutrients each year and they're creating the zone which they then essentially watered separately almost from the native soil below. But they didn't have to be doing all that. And so really the only purpose for rototilling or, or, or is to make your initial garden or make a seed bed where you're direct seeding that's commonly done by row crop farmers. Other than that, leave it as natural as you can. Let the roots break down naturally if you can allow that and keep adding stuff on top as well. And you'll create the most wonderful soil in the world. Well, let's go back to the mail. And Catherine had a second question. Yeah. She says, my other question is whether I need to strip all the leaves off roses when I prune them, and whether I should always clean the leaves off the ground, both of which I do because I mostly learn gardening from books that instructed me that roses are pestilential. Pestilential creatures that must be saved from their worst tendencies. If it matters, my roses are Kathleen, Zephyrine Duhin, Paul Bukozu, 
and Fragrant Cloud Cinco de Mayo, plus some miniature roses. Thank you very much for your show. There's three major rose diseases that attack roses in the West. Uh, the first one is downy mildew, the second one is rust, and the third one is powdery mildew. And that's kind of in the order in which they appear in the growing season. The one that will splash from, from the leaves, the old leaves up to the new leaves is rust. Rust is one of the more frustrating fungus diseases that we get. Um, it's a big problem when we have a lot of rain in the spring. It's much less of a problem when we don't have rain in the spring. You know, the drought years, people barely had any rose diseases. I'm expecting this year maybe we'll have more because it seems like we're in a wetter pattern. Well, I've heard this recommendation of stripping all the leaves off. I've never had less than 50 or 100 rose bushes. There isn't the slightest chance I'm ever going to do that because there's no way I could spend the time. If you have a small number of plants and you're pruning them back, look at the leaves as you do it. And on the underside of the leaf, there's either a black spore that rubs off or it's orange. Those are two phases of rust. Those are the spores that will splash. They're heavy. They don't float in the air like powdery mildew does. They splash from plant to plant. So the only way typically here we get a real problem with rust on roses going from year to year is if we have a lot of rain in the spring, which does sometimes happen, or if you have sprinklers instead of drippers in the springtime when the rust spores are active. So if you have sprinklers near your roses, like uh, things that are spraying into that bed and there's roses in there, maybe use drippers instead during the springtime. In the summer, this doesn't matter. Um, but stripping off the leaves in theory will remove the rust spores and help you prevent that initial infection. However, my observation has been the biggest factor in whether we have a lot of any disease is whether the weather conditions that favor infection and spread of the disease prevail for a long period of time. So it isn't the number of spores you start with as much as it is the favorable conditions for them. We, by the way, don't have any fungicides, in my opinion, that home gardeners can really use that work on rust in particular. So going to a chemical option on that is not something I would be recommending. And I, I don't off the top of my head know of anything any left on the market that really works on it anyway. Uh, the biggest factor in the spread of them, other than favorable conditions, is how close together you have them planted. So when I planted my new rose garden, I put them all at least six feet apart. And bigger roses, I put eight to 10 feet apart. One, I was planning to prune them more lightly. So I was gonna let them get a lot bigger than perhaps the catalog description. Second is if I do get a disease, particularly downy mildew or rust, those two in particular, if it hits one plant and the roses are really close together and we get more rain, it just spreads all through the whole bed. There's very little host specificity with respect to either of those diseases. It isn't like this one gets it, this one doesn't. Powdery mildew, there is. So we'll talk about that one separately. But if the roses are six feet apart, and they're clipped away from each other so there's air movement and good sunlight and you thin them out a little bit to improve that air movement you may get a disease on one and that's it it doesn't spread to all the others so the wider spacing the pruning to enhance airflow the pruning to enhance sunlight to the inside of the plant and watering at ground level during the infectious period to me those are the major factors in the spread of rust and, and also downy mildew and when Catherine says that she does this, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like it's an onerous thing. It sounds like it's her her normal habit, and yeah. she's been doing the same thing for years. Yep. And the question is, does she need to? No, but it won't um, hurt. It won't it, hurt. It, 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 it might might even help. 
it might help in some situations, certainly getting the leaves off the ground. This is one case where a leaf blower can be very helpful because you can get them out of the garden bed without injuring yourself, trying to pick them up underneath thorny rose bushes and just blowing them elsewhere, you know, where they wouldn't, where those spores couldn't get back to the roses is certainly one option. So it's a, I don't want, one of the problems I've always had with roses is people think there's this whole checklist of things they have to do. And this is mm -hmm. definitely not in the have to do category, but it probably helps reduce that initial infection. If you're in a, an area where your infectious period goes more than two, four, two to four to six weeks, which is what we have here, then you probably should do all that. You should probably even look into some of the fungicides that might be used locally in your area or consider doing a dormant spray on them. I don't do those things. Uh, my approach was to, to um, try to change the environmental conditions and particularly by getting them further apart. I do also look, for example, I was walking around this retirement center the other day. There's roses in a bunch of different places. Well, one of the beds is watered with sprinklers. That's just the way it goes. There's nothing they can do about that. There's sprinklers, traditional spray type sprinklers watering that bed. And the roses there were planted on three foot centers. That one, prune them harder, prune them away from each other, get the leaves off if you can. That's the best you can do. In my opinion, they're going to probably have continued problems with the diseases there until we can persuade the management to convert that little zone to drip irrigation, which is, by the way, a great way to water roses. They don't mind sprinklers, but you're in inviting disease problems if you're spraying with sprinklers in the spring. In the summer, it doesn't make any difference. These diseases have run their course. They're done. But in the springtime, when, which is when we're really enjoying that first big flush of bloom on our roses, if those diseases set in, it can be very frustrating. So try to minimize the sprinkler irrigation if you possibly can. But I really think more air movement, more sunlight. Remember, one of the many aphorisms of the Davis Garden Show is that sunlight and air are the enemies of disease. <laughs> We're going to do a you whole said, show of these aphorisms someday. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> uh, you said that you got a blower and you just blow the leaves out of those roses. Well, yeah. if you blew them into the nearby xylosma bush, wouldn't the xylosma then get rusted or no? Or thank goodness. Or whatever. Yeah, that's very important. Rust is very host specific. Rust is a fungus that people can see. It's orange. It's ugly. You can rub it off, and the orange stuff like Cheetos cheese puffs comes off on your hand. The rust that you get on your roses is host specific to roses. The rust you get on your snapdragons is host specific to snapdragons. The rust you get on your hollyhocks appears to be host specific to members of the mallow family. So that's an interesting one that your hollyhocks can get it. So can the cheese weed out in your field. So and can hibiscus? the lavatera, I don't know about hibiscus, but it wouldn't surprise me. So can the lavatera, which is a big mallow shrub that people like to grow. So that one is, is specific apparently to members of that family, as far as I can tell. And the rest that you get on your lawn, which can cause your bluegrass and sometimes your ryegrass to turn kind of yellowish orange. You look at the leaf blades and you see these little orange spots on there. Those are the spores. Good news, that only goes on the lawn. So in, in terms of your question, blowing them away to where there's no roses should take care of the problem. Yes, obviously it might be better to rake them up and put them out with the trash or something, but at least get them Why? away from the roses. Well, just get them away from the roses. That's the main thing. Away from the roses. All right. Yep. And that's true of lots of things. It's yep. uh, get them away from the plant that they're bothering. Every year, we, every time we have a wet spring, it happened in 2017, 2019, we had rain in April and into May. So the rust got bad. It went from just some of the lower leaves, which is where you typically see it splashing up from the ground, the leaves on the ground, to all the way up on the plant. And plants that were just coming into that wonderful early May bloom were just covered with it. And people wanted to know, what do I do about this? I said, well, I don't think there's a fungicide that works on this. Folks, if you know of one, email me at davisgardenshow at gmail.com and I'll evaluate it for consideration for further discussion. But 
what I do when I've had that problem occasionally is I cut that rose back again, let it bloom, enjoy that flush of bloom, cut it back again really hard as if it were January. Yes, you are weakening the plant by doing that, taking off all those leaves and growing points. So you're going to have to give that plant a little, a little nurturing for the next few weeks. But if you do that right as we're at the end of that infection period, I guarantee the new growth will pretty much come out unaffected and you'll still get summer bloom and you'll get that great fall bloom that we always get here in the Sacramento Valley as well. So we have a question from Maggie, who is in that retirement community that you are working with, and it says, outside my apartment, there is a magnificent salmon-colored rose in the Gerber garden that everyone admires, particularly in the spring when it is a strong salmon color. As the season goes along and warms up, the color becomes paler into a pastel version of that spring color. Now, in cool January, there are a few flowers developing, and they are a deep pink shade. Uh, someone said that you would be the botanist who can tell me how temperature could control petal color. Is that what's happening? I'm not a plant person, just a curious scientist. Yeah, uh, we do know that color changes due to temperature. Interesting fact that almost anyone who grows roses in California has the experience of roses coming into bloom midwinter. Uh, many of us who are out pruning roses, sure, there's still flowers on them. And light colored roses may have blush of pink to them. Iceberg will often have little spots of pink on it. We do know that pigment is definitely affected by temperature. There's changes in the amount of the particular pigments in the flower increasing and decreasing. The pigment that's responsible for red and purple colors, I think, is anthocyanin, and that seems to decrease as the temperature increases. So if you've got a lot of blush or buff-colored roses that are lovely in the spring, as we get into hotter weather, they tend to fade out. They tend to not have as strong a color. And in fact, I recommend, as you're choosing your roses, that you not do your yard all full of soft pastel colors because you'll basically have what looks like a lot of white roses in the summertime here. We get pretty hot here. The metabolic pathway in the plant changes. So on that, in the soup of, of molecules and, and chemicals and, and elements that are in the leaf, the cell soup, they change in their proportions and their outcomes change and the precursors to anthocyanin diminish. So the visible outcome of this change of the plant's physiology is that the pigment that you see changes. And typically it's the reds and the purples that change. So I have a rose that is sold as a blue rose, Blue Nile, and it's lovely in the spring, but I'm not going to sell this one because I know that people will come and complain to me. It looks like sterling silver. It's that mauve, lovely purple. It's a fragrant rose. It's great. In the summer, it's just pink. There's no purple to it. And then in the fall, it's purple again. You know, it's that silver, sterling silver kind of purple, not, not purple purple. And so as a retailer, I think this is just going to cause complaints. I'm not going to bother with it. I like it. It's great. If you want one, let me know. I'll take a cutting and grow it for you. But it's not going to be satisfactory because of the high temperature. You're just going to have a pink rose. It's a nice pink rose, but it's a pink rose. So you'll be disappointed. And by the way, the one plant we really see this in, crepe myrtle. Uh, we see significant pigment changes in the color of the flower based on temperature. And so as retailers, we all know about the, the absolute rule. If someone comes in and they start going on about this nuance or that nuance of the color of the crepe myrtle they want, we say, then you need to buy it in bloom because we're not going to get into those nuances with you and <laughs> try to explain to you that the pigment of the petal changes based on temperature. And it does. Roses, though, it can be quite distinct. And it's typically the reds and the purples. So... This is one of the charming aspects of certain rose varieties that they show this seasonal change as long as you're anticipating it. And as I mentioned, some white roses or very pale roses will actually show a blush of pink or more. Uh, they may be 
you know, substantially pinker when they open in cool conditions in the spring or the late fall or into the winter, but maybe pure white in the summer. So it basically is a change in the metabolic pathway leading to different pigments in the petals. That's the answer to that question. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.